The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves... It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We know from Scriptures that whenever we sin, we're out of fellowship with the Lord. When we're in a state of being out of fellowship, we, the Scripture says we are grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit. When we're grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit, then it shuts down our spiritual life and our spiritual growth. So that we are operating under the sin nature, what the Bible calls the flesh, and we are not operating by means of God the Holy Spirit, what the Bible calls walking by the Spirit. When we're not walking by the Spirit, we can't be filled by means of the Spirit. And the only way to recover from sin is to confess our sins to God. This is done privately. It's a matter of privacy between the believer and God. But we always take a few moments to have silent prayer. So you can use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary before we open in prayer so we can make sure that as we study God's Word, we do so filled with the Spirit, ready to study, concentrate, and learn the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we live in this nation that is a free nation. We thank you for those who have served in our armed forces throughout the centuries, those who have given their lives as a payment to purchase for us the freedoms which we have today. Father, we thank you for those in this congregation who have given a large portion of their lives to serve in the armed services of this nation, and for those who are members of this congregation who continue to serve in the armed forces. Father, we thank you that your word clearly uh, demonstrates that freedom is not something that is something we can expect, but it's something purchased through military victory. Now, Father, as this nation is engaged in this war against terrorism, we pray that you would strengthen our leaders, give them wisdom, both the political and military leaders, and that you would weaken and destroy our enemies. Father, we pray for safety for this nation, that your sovereignty would continue to protect us, and that after the wake-up call of September 11th, we would uh, 
be able to strengthen our security, strengthen our homeland defenses, and that you would continue to be the real source of that uh, strength, that security, because we know that without your care, without the wall of fire set up around the nation by you, that there will be no true security. Father, we thank you for your word, which is the ultimate source of truth. We pray now as we study it that we would be responsive to it, willing to submit our thinking to your thinking, that we might come to understand life as it is and the world as it is, that we might be able to think in accordance with reality as you have created it and not according to the pseudo-reality of autonomous man's uh, various constructs. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. We continue in our study of 1 John, and we are in 1 John 2, 15, and talking about the uh, concept of the world, cosmic thinking, worldliness. 1 John 2, 15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. In these verses, John, as James does in James chapter 4, sets up an antithetical contrast between the thinking of man and the thinking of God. The thinking of man is based on the principle of human autonomy that goes along with man's sinfulness. Man has set himself up independent from God ever since the instant that Adam decided he knew more about eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil than what God had instructed him. The result of his abrogation of the divine prohibition was that he became, out of, uh, that he became spiritually dead at that instant and plunged the entire human race into spiritual death. He followed his wife in that sin, and she was deceived by Satan, who is the original instigator of cosmic thinking. For all worldliness is merely an expression of the thinking and the logical extension of the thinking of Satan. There are two things that characterize two things characterize the, the thought of Satan at the time of his fall in eternity past. And we have to keep this in mind when we talk about all the things that we're going to talk about in relationship to understanding uh, worldliness. That worldliness, or the concept of the world, in the Greek it's cosmos, K-O-S-M-O-S, and what we're referring to is cosmic thinking. First of all, there is the emphasis on Autonomy. Meaning self law or independence, that the creature has the right to live and think independently of God, that the creature is going to be the the final reference point for defining reality. And this is going to express itself both in terms of religious ideas as well as philosophical ideas. 
On the other hand, it is antagonistic to God or hostile to God. And so it's going to express itself and all of its concepts ultimately are ways that are attacks on God. As such, the cosmic system not only has various religious systems, and remember religion is always defined as man trying to gain God's approval through his own works or effort or his own energy. Various philosophical systems, and almost every philosophical system has as its starting point something in the creation. And when your starting point is in the creation rather than in the thought of the Creator, you have, you have started with an autonomous principle that will always end up in conclusions that are antagonistic to the Word of God and antagonistic to the Scriptures. Loving the world, therefore, is a major problem for the believer because it is a way of thinking that produces a way of living and action that is uh, antithetical to God's plan, God's purposes, and God's procedures. But you see, we grow up inside that cosmic system. The world system describes another word that we can use that relates to it is just culture, human viewpoint culture. There are a vast array of cultures in this world, but every one of them has as its starting point something in the creation. Let me give you an illustration of how to approach culture. If you were to be to volunteer today to be a missionary in some country in Africa or some island out in Micronesia or Irianjaya or someplace like that, and you were going to a culture that was a Stone Age culture or a culture that was 180 degrees opposite from a culture that you had grown up with, before you went there, you would take a lot of time to study that culture because you're going to have to take the Word of God and you're going to have to teach that to people who are operating in that culture. Now, whatever culture it may be, and let's take for an extreme example because their culture is 180 degrees opposite of biblical culture, let's take India, a Hinduistic culture. Hinduism is 180 degrees opposite of Christianity at every point. Hinduism sees everything in the universe as being eternal, that evil and good are ultimately the same expressions of the ultimate reality, and that you just go through various cycles of reincarnation due to an impersonal law of karma that eventually you work into a state of nothingness, which is what nirvana is. And so it's the complete obliteration of the self. In contrast, biblical Christianity teaches that, that good is distinct from evil. Uh, evil is not eternal. Evil will be dealt with by God in, at some eventual point in the future at the great white throne judgment and confined and restricted to the lake of fire and that when the Christian goes to heaven, he maintains his personal identity and has personal identity and personal consciousness in a state of perfect happiness throughout all eternity. Now, if you're going to go communicate into a culture, into people who are 
let's say, in, in an Indian or Hindu culture, they're going to look at everything in life somewhat differently from the way you look at life, not just in terms of absolutes and morality, but also in terms of, of every feature of their culture, music, diet. Uh, every aspect of the way they live is somehow traceable to their ultimate views of reality uh, based on their religious system. So religion is at the core of every single cultural system. So if you're going to go in and you're going to address that culture uh, in any meaningful way with the gospel and with the truth of God's word, then you have to become a student of their culture to understand its strengths, its weaknesses, and every point at which it is in conflict with the Word of God so that you can clearly and precisely address the issues with the truth of God's Word. Now, having understood that example, let's change it. You're no longer a missionary to a culture that you're unfamiliar with, such as a Hindu culture in India, but you are a missionary to a culture of southern New England. And not only that, but you are also a missionary to a culture that is you. Because in your mentality, in your soul, you grew up being affected by all kinds of ideas, whether you grew up in a religious home or whether you grew up in a non-religious home, whether you grew up in a Protestant home, a Catholic home, whether you grew up in uh, some other religious background, you had your thinking formed and shaped by that system when you were very young, up through your uh, adolescent years. And some of those ideas are somewhat compatible with Scripture. Some of those ideas are incompatible with Scripture. But the entire system, the entire network within which all of those ideas were presented is antithetical to Scripture. It's called worldly thinking. And we all grew up with that. Not one of us grew up uh, apart from that. And the whole process of the spiritual life is a process of getting rid of that cosmic thinking and replacing it with Bible doctrine. And the point in doing a study like I'm doing last week, this week, and next week is to help us do cultural analysis on American culture so that we can see how certain ideas that we've absorbed from the world around us, because there's always that pressure. We're pressured. Every human being is pressured from various different points with ideas and values, ethics, opinions from the cosmic system around us that are putting pressure on us to live a certain way. And uh, it's our responsibility as believers to stop loving the world. That's the point in this first prohibition. It's, it's presented in a present active imperative, which indicates that this is to be a uh, habit pattern, a character pattern in the believer's life. But it can, it can be translated as a general principle, do not love the world, or it can be translated as stop loving the world, because for every believer we are to a certain degree attracted to the cosmic system around us, primarily because the cosmic system around us provides us with all kinds of ideas and wonderful rationales and justifications to allow our sin nature to function uh, in ways that make us feel very comfortable. 
When you're a baby believer, the issue is not so much focusing on the cosmic system, although that is part of advancing through spiritual infancy. Spiritual infancy, you're basically focusing on learning the foundational mechanics of the spiritual life, learning about grace, learning that at the cross, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin in human history, and that every one of us is born a sinner. And because we are born with a sin nature, and we are a sinner, that we are all under the condemnation of Adam's original sin, and we are born spiritually dead. And therefore, it is necessary for every single human being to be born again, to be regenerated. And first thing that has to happen in order for regeneration to take place is that the sin penalty has to be taken care of. And the sin penalty is taken care of at the cross when Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. So when Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins, they were paid for in full. So the issue now is not what we have done as sinners. The issue is what Jesus Christ did as the sin substitute. So we are to put our faith alone in Christ alone in order to have eternal salvation. Once we are saved, we still have a soul that is loaded with wrong ideas about reality. And now becomes the process of spiritual growth or sanctification. We not only have a soul that's loaded with all sorts of wrong ideas from the cosmic system, we have a soul that's loaded with all sorts of habit patterns, habits of thought, habits of actions, that are sinful habit patterns that we have become experts at in, ter- in order to make life work on our own apart from God. So we have to unlearn the sinful behavior patterns, unlearn sinful habit patterns, and unlearn uh, these cosmic thought patterns that become the rational rationales for our sin. The danger for the Christian life is clearly illustrated in a quote that I have here from Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called No Little People, and in there he points out a very insightful comment about the problem that faces the church today. He said, apart from Christ, anything which seems to be spiritual power is actually the power of the flesh. Notice how he relates that to the sin nature. Anything apart from Christ is based on the power of the sin nature. There are, there's no middle ground. He says, the real problem is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually or corporately, is tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the Spirit. He goes on to say, though we know the power of the Holy Spirit can be ours, we still ape the world's wisdom. We trust its forms of publicity, its noise, and imitate its way of manipulating men. If we fight the world with copies of its own weapons, we will fail, because the devil will honor these with his own, but our Lord will not honor these with us, for that does not give him the glory. They may bring some results. See, human viewpoint thinking always brings certain amount of positive results. You go out there and try any sort of technique to solve the problems in your life apart from the Scriptures, and it's going to work to some degree. It's not going to glorify God. It's not going to solve the problem. You've just substituted one sinful mechanism for another. It may be a more socially accepted sinful mechanism, but it's still a sinful mechanism. 
It says, they may bring some results, but they will not be the ones the Lord wants. Our hands will be empty of honor for God because he will not be getting the glory. We must not try to serve the Lord with our own kind of humanism and egoism. In this war, if Christians win a battle by using worldly means, they have really lost. Now that is exactly the point that I've been trying to make, especially in regard to psychology. Psychology is just one of a multitude of human viewpoint strategies that modern man has developed for solving problems and making life work apart from God. And it's so deeply embedded. See, this is the problem with worldliness, is it embeds a value system and an approach to life and a solution system that we don't even question. It just, it just comes right out of our mouth. I had a situation that happened this last week, and uh, I'm changing some of the instances, and so nobody will know who it really is. It wasn't anybody in this congregation, but it was somebody uh, outside the congregation. And this happens so frequently, I just want to use it as an example. I got a call, and it has to do with a couple that is having some marriage problems. And in this particular case, one of the one of them is having greater problems, is, more, is the cause of the marriage problems more so than the other. And one of the first suggestions that came out as we were discussing this was, well, maybe we ought to go to counseling, to, get, to a psychologist specifically. See, that just it, it's sort of this knee-jerk reaction that if you're having problems in your marriage, and the reason I use that is because sooner or later everybody seems to have some kind of conflict in marriage and wants some kind of help. And the knee-jerk reaction from anybody in our culture is if you're having problems in your marriage, well, go to an expert, go to some marriage counselor or some therapist. But the problem is that most people don't realize there's over 200 different therapies and over, two, I mean, over 200 different views of how personalities work. Um, not to mention just trying to define what a personality is, and over 2,000 different therapies or techniques. And every one of those is shaped by religious assumptions. And even among so-called Christian psychologists, and frankly there's no such thing as Christian psychology, I had a quote that I used in the uh, study I did about a year ago on, on psychology from the uh, Christian Psychiatric Association, where they basically said, we don't know of any system that is specifically Christian. We know of psychologists that are Christian, and they basically use every, every technique or different models of personality and personality order that secular psychologists use. So when people, people are so trusting, that's the expert, that's the person with a degree after their name, so they'll be able to solve the problem. And how are they going to address the problem? They, they have some kind of system that they've amalgamated between Freudianism or Jungianism or Maslowianism or some other system and uh, Christianity. And they use a lot of Christian terms. But the basic assumptions of the whole approach are, are fallacious. And yet that's our knee-jerk reaction. See, that's how cosmic thinking works. It is subtle. And it shapes our thinking. So the first thing we need to do is, is we got a problem, let's address it by some psychological professional and not, well, what does the Word of God say and how do I address the problem and what is the solution? And whenever there are problems in life, it ultimately is going to come down to the sin nature. Every single one of us has a sin nature, and if we don't deal with it in terms of sin, 
it's, it's not going to be properly dealt with. It may just be whitewashed over. We have to understand the dynamics of the sin nature. It's motivated by a lust pattern, which is going to move everybody in one direction or another. If you're married to somebody and they have power lust, then you're going to have a real problem with control and authority control. And if you've got a, a, a man that is married to a woman who has power lust, and the man has another area of weakness, then he's going to ha- constantly have to fight the fact that she wants to wear his pants. And that is going to be a constant struggle. And you, that's why it's so important in dating stages, for those of you who haven't married yet or are not married, then you need to pay attention to this. Because you get in a situation where you're married and your sin nature is married to somebody else's sin nature, you better make sure you want to handle their sin nature when they go out of fellowship and their sin nature goes into overdrive. Because sooner or later, almost every time I end up having to do some kind of marriage counseling or you go through some kind of marriage crisis, it ultimately revolves around uh, several basic problems. The most common problem is money. Almost everything boils down to money. And then you have people who are struggling with some form of money lust or materialism lust. And the most extreme and egregious cases are when one person manages, especially if they have like a gambling problem or something like that, and they just get the family in serious financial straits because of their irresponsible use uh, of money. Second area in which people often have problems when they, when they go through a marital meltdown is just priorities. Priorities. The one has one set of agendas and the other has another set of agendas and maybe they weren't there when they first got married or maybe they were and they weren't honest about it with one another or with themselves. And the kind of person you are as a single person is the kind of person you're going to be when you get married. You're no better in marriage than you were when you were single. And uh, the kind level of integrity that you have when you get married is uh, what you take in marriage. Don't expect the fact that you change your status from being single to married to be the, uh, a solution to the problem. So we have these various lust problems. Problem, lust pattern problems, money, priorities, that's just time management, where you're putting the emphasis, whether it's on you, whether it's on somebody else, uh, on the kids, what they're doing, that, that becomes a problem. Third area problem is sex. Uh, one person may want it more than the other person, or one person may use it as a means of manipulating the other person, which uh, is to- has no basis in any kind of Christian marriage whatsoever. And then you get into various other lusts that, that can destroy marriage, such as chemical lusts, where you have one person turn into an alcoholic or a drug abuser, and that, again, is going to affect money. Uh, you get somebody who's having serious money problems in a marriage. I've run into two or three of these over the years, and usually it involves some kind of drug or alcohol problem, or it involves a gambling problem, or it involves uh, a sex problem. One or the other, they're involved in some sort of illegitimate extramarital sex, and therefore that's where their money is going outside the marriage. So you hit these various marriage problems, but just because there's a problem doesn't mean there's not a solution because, frankly, if you're not the problem and you think the other person is, well, you've got a sin nature as well. And so the issue in solving problems is always dealing with the root cause of the problem, which is the sin nature. Now, you see, what I've just articulated for you is a basic model of how you overcome interpersonal problems in marriage. 
Now, you're not going to get that from a psychologist or from a, even a Christian psychologist who gives lip service to that. But I tell you, I have studied almost every major thinker in terms of Christian counseling and psychology, and they talk about sin, but, they, but see, all of a sudden, as soon as they start bringing in the issue of sin, if they're, they're a Christian, what they have to do to deal with that is going to relate to their whole theology of sanctification. Now, is this guy that you're talking to or this gal in, in counseling a theologian, or are they somebody who has all their training in psychology and counseling? Because, see, what I've just identified for you is the problem is a sanctification problem. The problem isn't a psychology problem. And yet you're going to somebody who has no tools for dealing with sanctification because, frankly, they haven't studied it and it's not taught very well in most seminaries. It has to do with the spiritual life. And that is why up until Freud came along and managed to convince everybody in Western civilization that, that soul problems had nothing to do with spiritual problems, that um, up until that point, the pastor was considered a soul doctor. He, 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 they wrote books about the cure of the soul, and it had to do with coming to church, learning doctrine, and applying it in your life. But if you're not learning doctrine and applying it in your life or your spouse's, see, it doesn't take two people to make, it takes two people to make a marriage. It only takes one to destroy a marriage. And if one person is seriously applying the word in their life and the other person isn't, well, you're just going to have nothing but problems. Because you've got one person operating on divine viewpoint and the other person operating on human viewpoint. And if, unless both are willing to grow towards Christ together, there's going to be nothing but conflict and misery in that marriage. They have to take in the Word of God on a consistent basis and apply the Word of God. And then on the basis of the Word of God, you can surmount any problem, any difficulty in life, and that's exactly what grace orientation means, is all about and what the sufficiency of Scripture is all about. But what happens is people get the idea that, well, I'm having this problem, so I'm going to go out here and I'm going to talk to somebody else about something, some kind of solution. And most, almost all psychology always ends up in some sort of hyper-self-absorption. We have to understand the function of the sin nature. We have a lust pattern that's the motivator. Then you have two areas, the area of strength, which is where we manage to resist sinful t temptation and operate in, on relative good. And then the other pole is personal sins that uh, come from our area of weakness. And everybody has a sin nature, and everybody's going to operate on their sin nature at some point or another. And it's only doctrine and the sufficiency of grace that's going to solve the problem. And what you hear when people, what people are really saying when they bail out and they run off to some Christian counselor is that I've been sitting in Bible class for five years. Now I've got problems. Doctrine isn't enough. And that's, what they, that's really what's saying is doctrine doesn't work. Now, the problem might be that, that doctrine's not working, might be working for you and not working for your spouse, but running off to a counselor isn't going to solve somebody else's problem. That's just another form of manipulative behavior, trying to get somebody else to dance to your own tune. So, and all of this flows out of a worldly conception of how to make marriage work and how to solve problems. Well, people are always moved towards different trends of their lust pattern. Some people tend to be ascetic, legalistic, and um, that always emphasizes uh, some sort of hyper-morality. 
And then the other trend is towards licentiousness, lasciviousness, and antinomianism. And these are the poles that people always swing back and forth between. And if you don't understand the dynamic here and the biblical provisions for how to solve the problem, then what's going to happen is that that you're going to look for something to just kind of anesthetize the sin nature rather than truly addressing the problem that can only come by taking in doctrine and walking by means of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit. So that's just one example of why it is so important to, to understand the dynamics of worldliness and how it affects us on a day-to-day basis. Now, another example of this came this last week in, a, in an email I got from, with some uh, various thoughts from a friend of mine who's been, been here and visited here a couple of times, Gene Brown. And uh, this, I think this might have been a copy of an email he was sending off to uh, his daughter who's now in... in uh, College and he always copies me on their email so I can follow their fascinating discussions because they are they're both quite quite intelligent and they have very interesting uh, conversations. So he wrote some insightful things about the impact of postmodernism. You see, the world in which we live today is a postmodern world, and postmodernism affects the way all of us think ha- and has affected that in one way or another. So Gene writes. When we moved into a society of relative thinking, read existentialism. We'll come back and talk about that a little bit later. When we moved into a society of relative thinking, we abandoned abandoned the thinking that travels with absolutes. You can see examples of this all around you continuously as people on their own determine what is right and wrong and freely challenge any accepted norms and standards. Even those of us fed on absolutes find ourselves being sucked into dividing up guilt or explaining why we or someone else is not responsible for their actions. In relative thinking, one is only interested in an answer. Truth is not an issue and may even be considered something of a problem in that it narrows the field of answers. Absolutes demand belief. Relativism just demands answers. Hebrews 4.2 describes one of our major problems today. We have now embraced philosophical and religious concepts that do not require belief, only acceptance or answers. Dallas Willard of the University of Southern California stated this clearly when he said that we parrot the accepted cliches and politically corrected jargon as though we believe, but what is really happening is that we are only given, only giving the right answers. See, that's what happens in most churches. So I've seen this happen again and again and again. People put on this facade of positive volition, and they're able to give the right answers, and they're able to say the right things, but when it comes down to the way they live when they get home, the way they relate to their children, to their spouses, the way they function on the job, the way they live on a day-to-day basis on whether or not they apply the Word of God or not, it's not really there, but somehow they created this facade of self-deception where they think it's there and they think they're actually applying the word. And that's what Dallas Willard comments on. We parrot the accepted cliches and politically correct jargon. We have a facade that looks right. Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed sepulchers, but on the inside were dead men's bones. On the outside, there's this facade of applying the word and obeying the word and giving all the right answers and knowing all the right things to say. And this is something that one reason that that I hate having to do any kind of uh, 
marriage counseling is because usually you have to spend about 20 hours before you can start ripping away the uh, mask or the facade that somebody's created in order to try to make it look like they're really the one that's okay and, and their self-justification. And a pastor doesn't have that kind of time to give that kind of attention to somebody in the pew. I mean, if I gave 20 hours a week to everybody in this congregation that needed it, I would never have any time to uh, study the Word on my own. And that's why we do group counseling every time we have Bible class. Because that's really what it is. You learn the Word of God, and then you can apply it to your own life. And if you don't, you're going to suffer the consequences. And if you enjoy wallowing in self-induced misery, then you can take that option. But don't try to include me in the solution after 15 years of self-induced misery. Well, Gene goes on to write, To believe something requires absolutes, even if it is a lie, But an absolute nevertheless. This is why we live by answers in our culture today. There is no problem in changing an answer. All you need is an eraser. Without absolutes, responsibility can easily become extinct. So this is just some of the importance of studying how a culture thinks and why it thinks the way it does because we are products of that culture. Just as if you go off to, to New Delhi to try to have a ministry to... Uh, to the Hindus, you need to be able to analyze the cultural thinking that's in your own soul that you have picked up and absorbed through life. So I've got a couple of examples I want to read just to show you the importance and significance of this. First of all, this comes from an uh, article a pastor wrote in... Uh, the Journal of Christian Apologetics, giving a couple of examples from his own congregation. He says, Consider Brian, a man in his late 20s in suburban Detroit. When he visited my church, I was initially impressed by his seeming grasp of theology and love for the Bible. He expressed a belief in the inerrancy of the Scriptures and in what he believed to be a dispensational understanding of theology. Upon further query, however, he also asserted a belief in reincarnation and in transcendental meditation. When I pressed him concerning the fact that Christianity and TM are based upon two radically opposing worldviews, he could not see any problem. He enjoys reading the Bible, but he likes the idea of coming back in another life in another form. He could not see that the two systems opposed each other. Further conversation revealed that what was true for me was not truth for him. He goes on to say, we live in a permissive time. Consider Ada, a 29-year-old widow whose husband died four years ago. She had been struggling alone to raise her six-year-old son for all that time, coming to church and professing faith. One day a man came into her life with kind words. Shortly thereafter, she invited him to move in with her and her son. At first, they both claimed to be Christians and did not see anything wrong with their lifestyle choices. I asked her, would you allow your son, when he becomes a teenager, to ask a young lady to move in with him? She replied that she did not see that it would be wrong. When confronted directly, Ada denied having ever embraced Christ at all. Who are you, she finally said to me, her pastor, to say what a person should or should not do. I objected that her condemnation came not from me, but from the Scriptures. And suddenly the plain meaning of the Scriptures became instead a matter of personal interpretation 
and she suggested that the Bible could be used to prove anything. See, we live in a time when truth has become extremely fluid, and even so that it, it dominates politics and political thinking. It is typical, we ask, why is it that we can have a president that can uh, get away with uh, violating law by committing perjury, and the nation just want to turn a blind eye to it? We ask why certain people in society uh, commit certain crimes and seem to get away with it, and people just say, well, I know they did it, but I don't think they ought to pay the penalty. And that comes from a lack of understanding of absolutes. But I ran across a wonderful example of how postmodernism affects thinking right now concerning just the events that we're in in this war. We, I've told you episodes before about professors at Berkeley who have stated that the problem with America today and the reason that the attack of September 11th, that that is totally justified because of all of, of America's past crimes. Now, nobody seems to be, ra- well, I've heard a few, raising the issue that there's nothing that anybody's done that should justify that kind of attack. Anybody who suggests that, we, that America got what they deserved in any way, shape, or form should frankly be run out of the country tarred and feathered. Because despite the fact, and that doesn't justify any, everything that, that has been done politically by this nation. We all know that there are things that are done that, are, that have not only been unwise, but foolish, manipulative, whatever. But that doesn't, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. I mean, that's just a basic principle that most of us should have learned at our mother's knee. And so the, that, but that thinking underlies that kind of criticism. Well, this, uh, this insidious idea that somehow Americans have done something in the past that justifies uh, or is the rationale for this kind of action uh, leaks out in some interesting places. So there's an article here by Joseph Curl from the Washington Times that came out on the 8th of November. Bill Clinton, the former president, said yesterday that terror has existed in America for hundreds of years and the nation is, quote, paying a price today, unquote, for its past of slavery, and for looking, quote, the other way when a significant number of Native Americans were dispossessed and killed, which shows that he's divorced completely from history. There's no longer... See, that's what postmodernism does in pure relativism. All of a sudden, history is no longer objective. And that doesn't justify any past actions, but when you look at history from an objective viewpoint, you realize that the flow of history for the last 5,000 years has been one civilization or nation replacing another and, and taking territory from another for whatever reason. And if you have a biblical viewpoint, you realize that as God t- tears down one nation because of their extreme uh, sinfulness and you understand anything truthful, you don't find this in anything recently written, but you understand anything truthful about the... Um, I'm a Native American, so we'll call them Indians, as they should be called. And you understand anything about the Indian religions, they were extremely demonic. They were as demonized as any culture in history. And God has a habit of destroying cultures that become excessively demonic, and he does that through using other nations. 
And so any attempt at, at criticizing that concept in history is ultimately an attack on how God governs history. But anyway, so Clinton goes on to say, Here in the United States, we were founded as a nation that practiced slavery, and slaves quite frequently were killed even though they were innocent. He said in a speech to a thousand students at Georgetown University, he goes on to say this country, and, and, and nobody will uh, contradict the idea that slavery was wrong and that was something that never should have taken place, it was inconsistent with, with the uh, Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, but no nation is perfect, and we worked our way through that, although we almost destroyed ourselves because we did it on the basis of arrogance and not on the basis of grace, and I've covered that in detail in the past. But he goes on to say, This country once looked the other way when it's... Um, let me skip ahead. He says, And we are still paying a price today. Then, he said, uh, he's, He spoke about the, the world after September 11th, and he sought to... Um, let me see. He sought to dispel fears of terrorism and this anthrax business. I submit to you, he said, that we are now in a struggle for the soul of the 21st century in the world in which you students will live to raise your own children and make your own way. Mr. Clinton said that international terrorism that has only just reached the United States dates back thousands of years. Uh, dates back probably to the inception of sin. I think Cain terrorized Abel. But I guess I'm just too biblical. In the, then he, then here's, the, here's the example. He says, In the first crusade, when the Christian soldiers took Jerusalem, they first burned a synagogue with 300 Jews in it and proceeded to kill every man, every woman and child who was a Muslim on the Temple Mount. He says, I can tell you that story is still being told today in the Middle East, and we are still paying for it. Now, the point I want to make is that last statement. In his... Analysis of history, who's the bad guy here? It's Western Europe. Okay, now let's evaluate this in the light of truth and not in the light of postmodern hogwash. It's just flummery. Okay. See, a civilization, Western civilization, you have Western Europe was a combination of, you have very, let's say you have Anglo Saxon, um, Various uh, nature religious religion groups and Celtic religious groups. And then you go over and you have various uh, uh, Germanic uh, barbarian paganism, and then you have the paganism of the various Slavic hordes that uh, came across Europe in various ways. Now, ultimately, the the religions from from uh, from the Druidic religions of the Celts all the way down. Basically, the, the metaphysics of all those religious systems and the metaphysics of, of the nature religions in Africa and the nature religions in the Middle East and the nature religions of Asia are pretty much the same. But what made the difference in Europe was the fact that Christianity came in and sought to replace, and in some cases did a, a tremendous job of replacing the old paganism with uh, Christianity. So you had in Western Europe a culture that was to a large degree Christian, even though it still had a strong element of paganism in it, and the Christians were still trying to influence culture to one degree or another to get rid of the paganism. 
Now, part of the paganism ideas were picked up and absorbed by, by Roman Catholicism, and that included um, a lot of the motivation that led to the Crusades. But the first crusade, which is the reference that Clinton makes in that speech, occurred in 1095. 1095. Well, let's see. In uh, 570, almost 500 years earlier, Muhammad was born. He made the Hajira to Mecca in 622. He died in 632. And in 732 B.C., so over here we'll have the like the, on a map, the Middle East. And in 732 B.C., they have conquered all the Middle East. They have conquered uh, Asia Minor. They have conquered and martyred thousands of Christians in North Africa. They have taken Spain, and they have invaded across the Pyrenees into France, and at the Battle of Tours, Charles Martel stopped the barbaric flood and the violence of the Islamic hordes from invading Europe. At the same time, they're coming across Turkey, and eventually they came across the Hellespont and into the Baltic area. That's why we have uh, Muslims in the, in the Baltics. And they're at the gates of Vienna, and they aren't kicked out of Vienna until around 1492, 15, no, I think it was the 15, early 1500s. So when you talk about the Crusades, and everybody seems to want to blame Western Europe for the Crusades, the Crusades are a response to, look at this, 732, to over 300 years of Islamic terrorism. Something conveniently forgotten. Why? Because there is endemic in postmodern thought, which is what we're gradually working our way into, there is this idea from, of, of just not simply relativistic morals, but that recognizing that all cultures are reflections of ethical systems, all ethical systems are reflections of religious presuppositions, they recognize that all cultures, therefore, are equally relative. So it doesn't matter what culture you're talking about, whether you're talking about a cannibalistic uh, North American Indian culture, whether you're talking about an Islamic terrorist culture that murders uh, men, women, and children as a guarantee of going directly to heaven, whether you're talking about a Judeo-Christian culture, whether you're talking about a Druidic culture in Celtic Ireland, or whether you're talking about some sort of, of Buddhist culture in, in China, they all have equal value, and you can't judge one over against the other. Now, that is the kind of thing that dominates America, and if you don't understand this, you're going to have a hard time under, understanding why you have some companies in America who are prohibiting anyone in their company from having a flag or displaying a flag at work because it might offend somebody who's not from America. You see, all of this plays itself out, and that's the culture in which we live. So we have to understand some things about this culture so that we can begin to perceive how this culture has affected our own soul in different ways of thinking. So I need to remind you of 
basic chart over and over again. We're going to get into this because it is so so foundational to just understanding uh, history. We have to have a historical and intellectual process here. You can't just think this has just happened. We have a basis for knowledge. We've gone over this before, so I'm just, I just, we have to get this terminology into our thinking. We have, in a human viewpoint, which is worldliness, there are three basic systems of thought. There's rationalism, which starts with innate ideas and is based on the independent use of logic. Then there's empiricism. Empiricism starts with sense perceptions and again proceeds, excuse me, on the method it proceeds on the method of the independent use of logic and reason. When I talked about cosmic thinking, I said it has two elements. It has an element of autonomy and an element of antagonism to God. When man declares his autonomy, that his logic and reason are independent from God, then what he thinks is on his own, through the use of his own mental capabilities, he can understand and explain all of reality and doesn't need input from God. Now, that doesn't mean that that logic and reason are inherently wrong. It is the independent use of logic and reason that are wrong. But historically what happens is rationalism and empiricism, which if we merge them together, really form the basis of the Enlightenment and Enlightenment thinking, that there's always a reaction in history to some form of skepticism. Because ultimately, when you push it far enough, human reason and human experience is always going to fall apart. It can't provide ultimate answers. And so the result is then skepticism. Well, we can't know the truth. But people have to live as if there are truths. See, that's the problem we see in postmodernism. If everything is relative, then there is no truth. Of course, we all know that the basic problem with that is if there is no truth, is it true that there is no truth? And then you get in that logical trap. So ultimately, it implodes upon itself because it is illogical. And it is a form of mysticism because the emphasis then shifts from reason to emotion. And mysticism is based on the idea of some sort of inner private experience, some sort of intuitive flash into the ultimate meaning of life. But it's still faith in human ability, but its development is, is non-logical, non-rational, non-verifiable. It's irrational. It's just the opposite. It rejects reason and logic. Reason and logic are, aren't necessary. We, if you and I were to come along and talk with somebody totally devoted to this, they would say, yes, well... You're, you're just bringing all that rationalism up, and that, that's just, uh, you can't find meaning in life on the basis of rationalism, so you just haven't had the, the right insights yet. And all of these represent human attempts to face life, describe life, understand life, and solve life's problems. In contrast, the Christian, the biblical Christian, believes in the priority of revelation that God has spoken, and on the basis of the objective revelation of God, we can understand things. God is understandable, God is logical, and God is rational, and meaning is communicated through language. See, in postmodernism, language is fluid. Language is nothing but a cultural invention in order to gain power over people. So they attack the very core of meaning itself and the expression of meaning in language and and 
try to destroy all meaning and, and logic. So ultimately it revolves in something that is irrationalism. Now, how did this come about? Well, we have a chart on the overhead to try to explain how this came about historically. It begins after the Reformation in a period called the Enlightenment, after the, after the Renaissance, starting in the early 1600s and lasting till about 1780. These are just approximate dates. Descartes is the father of rationalism. Locke is the father of modern empiricism. Together, they, they link together and form the thinking of the Enlightenment. Now, there were good aspects to the Enlightenment and negative aspects of the Enlightenment, but ultimately, the Enlightenment is based on the assumption that man, on the basis of human reason and intellect alone, can come to ultimate answers and solve all of man's problems. It's called the Enlightenment in contrast to what went before, which the enlightened thinkers of the, as the Germans called it, the Aufklärung, the Enlightenment, as they, they, they referred to the earlier period as the Dark Ages. See, the Dark Ages, now what does that conjure up? You've all heard that term. That conjures up images of a bunch of Catholic priests in a monastery trying to impose horrible things on people. You know, it's an attack on, on Christianity. You know, there were good things there and there were bad things there, but the Enlightenment, the terminology, is an attack itself, is an attack on Christianity. Well, in the history of thought, rationalism and empiricism dominate until the until a German, the, a German philosopher by the name of Immanuel Kant comes along and makes a radical shift in, in the development of, of thinking. And all of this is what's called modernism. Just because you lived in doesn't mean you were necessarily modernistic, but the core of modernism is that man can solve problems on his own on the basis of reason. Ultimately, everything is rational, everything has meaning, and we can just, man can, on his own, understand all of reality. But Kant came along, Kant came along and said that, that life really consists of two spheres. You have an upper sphere, which he called the um, noumenal. We can't know it. And a lower sphere that he called the phenomenal. This is all the different things that we see, the details of life, everything that we can know. Now, up here we have ideas. This really was a rehash of Plato but it, 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 it fell apart because of some interesting things that Kant does with it. Ideas, absolutes, and God are all up here. But for Kant, you can't know the noumenal. So there's like this brick wall here, and man has no idea what's upstairs. In his mind, man has a, has a sort of a translating device that categorizes all of reality and organizes all of reality. And so when you look at things out there, all you can know is your own perception. You can't know things. You don't only know your own perception. You can't know things as they are. You can only know something as you perceive it. Well, that destroys all absolutes and all universals. You can only know what you know. You can't know what anybody else knows. And so this begins to break down 
the whole concept of knowledge. That's why I hated studying modern philosophy. Because modern philosophy can only find meaning by looking at all of these details. Every, every kind of detail. And you get all kinds of things from logical positivism to linguistic analysis with Wittgenstein and all this horrible stuff. Because they can't ever get in, they can't do any real work in terms of absolutes or meaning or values anymore because they've rejected it as knowable. It's just completely meaningless. So we go back to the other chart. And what we see is this decline and this assault on, on thinking. And, and see, with always in history, when rationalism and empiricism are rejected, they're always replaced with skepticism. Skepticism and existentialism. And existentialism says, basically, I can't, the only way I can find any meaning in life, since, since, since I can't find it through reason and experience anymore, I, I can only find it maybe if, if I create the meaning for myself. If I create the meaning for myself, and existentialism ultimately uh, becomes bankrupt because existentialism starts off with, the, with borrowing too much from rationalism and empiricism, and then we end up in the modern era, which is called postmodernism. See, this is the dividing line. And postmodernism has its roots as far back in, in the 1930s and 1940s, uh, and in 50s with certain thinkers, but it's those intellectual thinkers and th- their ideas that just kind of filtered down in the universities and colleges down into the classroom and destroys all kinds of things in terms of absolutes. You know, one of the things that, that really hurt me academically was the impact this had on the study of language. You know, most of you who are over the age of 45, let's say, when you were growing up, you were taught grammar as in high school and in junior high. And you learned all kinds of things about nouns and verbs, and, and you learned about adjectives and adverbs, and you were made to do those horrible exercises where you had to uh, diagram sentences. Now, there's a role to grammar. Grammar is very important. Now, when I went to college, there was a fad. Now, that fad grew out of postmodern relativistic thinking towards language. And it was called um, transformational grammar. Don't ask me what it was. I, had, that, that was. I was an English major, and I was required to have one semester of grammar, and that was what was in vogue for about a two- or three-year period when I was in college. And it was like, well, there's not really any nouns, and there's not really any verbs, and you can just make it mean whatever you want it to mean. I mean, that's basically what I got out of that course, was that language was now something that was completely subjective. It was whatever you assign, whatever meaning you assigned to grammar was what, what made it okay. And then they realized that, that that was completely ridiculous and it got thrown out. But these are the kinds of fads that have come along and have uh, uh, influenced education. And it creates a horrible situation such that the, the modern generation that is growing up that has deeply imbibed of... Uh, of postmodernism has lost all sense of, of uh, absolutes. For example, in a recent survey, it was discovered that in, in regard to defining uh, or what they thought about absolute truth, these were some of the responses that came back. Truth is what you believe. For the more large percentage of people said, also said there was no absolute truth. 
And if there were such a thing, how would we know it? But the, but the most dangerous thing that came back in this survey was the conclusion that people who believe in absolutes are dangerous. People who believe in absolutes are dangerous. And that has led to a redefining of the concept of tolerance. A redefining of the concept of tolerance so that tolerance no longer is the fact that people should hold strong beliefs but respect the rights of others to hold opposing beliefs. But tolerance is now the view that no one should hold any strong beliefs. If you hold strong beliefs, you're intolerant. And intolerance now becomes the major social sin in modern America. So if you hold strong beliefs, you're, you're by definition intolerant and you're an enemy of the culture, an enemy of the nation. And that's why patriotism is viewed as dangerous when you get to places like Berkeley and a few other places in this country. And when I was out in Southern California not long ago, I wish I'd sat down and written all this stuff out. Uh, I heard so many different reports on the local news of what was going on in Berkeley and the relativism and the anti-Americanism. They basically came out and uh, there was a local newspaper on campus that had uh, that had printed an editorial cartoon of the uh, hijackers being ejected from their cockpit seats through the flaming inferno of the World Trade Center into the flaming inferno of hell instead of a, the, the expected paradise of, the, of uh, Islam. And so the uh, student council at Berkeley uh, voted a uh, recommendation to the governing board to increase the rent of the newspaper so that it became exorbitant and basically would run them out of business, and voted and, and voted a hundred percent to condemn the actions of the newspaper. Of course, they didn't pass any resolution condemning the actions of the terrorists. Now, what is it that produces that kind of mentality? It's postmodernism. It's something that is everything is completely relative. So let's get back to understanding its, its significance and importance. And that is, as the Scripture teaches us, that we are not to be conformed to the thinking of the world around us. Well, in order to fulfill that, we have to understand something about the thought forms of the world around us and how it impacts our view of everyday events. And so we'll come back and start looking at basic characteristics of postmodernism next time and how that impacts our view and our interpretation of everyday events and problems. As I said at the beginning, one of the things that happens here is there's a lot of subtleties that, that we're not aware of. And, and we've just grown up with these ideas, and they seem like second nature to us. Just like the couple that had a marriage problem, and their knee-jerk response was, well, let's go to a marriage counselor, let's go to a therapist. These are people who have been listening to doctrine for years. You know, doctrine's no longer the solution. And the problem is that you have one person who just flat out not applying doctrine at all, and going to a therapist isn't going to solve the problem. The only thing that's going to solve the problem is for this person to admit sin in the life and then deal with it and stop doing it. And apart from that, there is no solution. Any other solution is a pseudo-solution. Now, you may restore some level of harmony in the marriage, but that doesn't glorify God. 
There has got to be an open admission and dealing with sin in life to overcome those problems. And you can't address them from some kind of worldly system of problem solving. So these are antithetical, and the believer has to completely avoid being influenced by and being in love with cosmic approaches to life. As we, I read in the quote from, from Francis Schaeffer, the problem with the church today is we're trying to do God's work man's way. And as long as we're using human viewpoint techniques to solve problems and make life work, we'll never make it. And the problem is we're going to use human viewpoint techniques thinking that we're doing it God's way. And when we have problems, we're going to say doctrine doesn't work. Because, see, that's the complexity of the human soul. We rationalize everything, and somehow it ends up being God's fault and not my fault. It's not my sin nature. It must have something to do with, well, let's throw out Christianity and go do something else. The only hope is to completely renovate our thinking according to the Word of God. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to the cosmic system, but be transformed by the renewing of your thinking. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your word, to understand some facets of how our culture, the the thinking of the culture around us is radically opposed to your word and to doctrine. Father, we recognize that scripture teaches that doctrine is sufficient for everything in life, and that is because of the sufficiency of salvation at the cross. We pray that there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their eternal destiny and uncertain of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Salvation was fully accomplished at the cross, so the issue now is what do you believe? Do you believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, was buried, rose again the third day? Or are you trusting in your own works, your own effort, or some other system for salvation? Scripture makes it clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So right now you have the opportunity. Right now, right where you sit, you can trust in Christ alone for your salvation. You don't need to pray a prayer, raise your hand, or walk an aisle. God knows what you are thinking and what you believe and what you are trusting in. Father, we pray that you would challenge the rest of us, make us more aware of our thinking and the way we seem to rationalize away obedience to your word and justify our own sinful actions that we might not be not be succumbing to cosmic thinking, but that we might continue to transform our thinking through the application, through learning and applying doctrine. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.